0: Hello, and welcome to SLAS New Matter, the podcast where we interview life science luminaries. Today, we have here special guest, board member, and professor Peter Simpson. How are you, Peter? Good, Mike. How are you doing? I'm excellent. So tell me about your history with SLAS and its precursor orgs. How long have you been a distinguished volunteer with us? Yeah, first
1: time I engaged with SBS was back in the previous century, back in 1999. An SBS at <laughs> a meeting in Edinburgh. So it oh, goes back a while, actually. I, I know I don't look old enough, but that's it.
0: And then, <laughs> hundreds I, of years ago.
1: Hundreds right. of years ago. But then from 2012 onwards, I joined the board of the journal and obviously what became SLIS Discoveries have been more actively involved since 2012.
0: Excellent. And tell me about what you're doing today. Maybe, in fact, we'll put a little limitation on that. Can you do it in 10 words? What do you do?
1: I'm the chief scientific officer of a National Institute for Drug Discovery.
0: Oh my God, that was actually amazing. Yeah. That was the first person who's done it in a while. Um, <laughs> how'd you find yourself in such a role? Like, how did the career steps you've taken to now prepare you for this role as a chief governmental scientist?
1: Yeah, so I, was, I spent most of my career after my postdocs in America. I came back to the UK and went into the pharma industry, worked for Merck, Sharp, and Dome, then for AstraZeneca. So, got to know a lot about the drug discovery pharma industry. But then I stepped out of that and I went to work for a university umbrella organization running the partnership of eight universities across the north of England. So I've been doing open innovation in the pharma industry, working with academics. Then I went to work with academics and helping them to work with industry. And then very helpfully, the government set up this catapult organization to drive national drug discovery collaboration between academia and pharma. And they very helpfully set it up 10 miles from where I live. So it felt like (laughs) it was calling to me, Mike. It was calling. So it's funded by the UK Government Innovation Agency, Innovate UK, but it is a private, uh, not-for-profit company. So It's the best, hopefully, of both worlds.
0: And tell me about what the Catapult mission is. What are you looking to do? What are your moonshots?
1: Well, so we recognize that there's many... When you're an innovative small company or innovative academic, actually taking that next step to a validated, investable project is really difficult. So we've invested in core capability areas that a small company can't afford to invest in. We've been excellence in, for example, innovative high-throughput mass spectrometry, which also requires expertise and expensive equipment. We develop complex cell models and high-resolution imaging systems for those complex cell models. We have both informatics and biological approaches to target validation And then we have an extensive effort now in biomarker discovery and biomarker validation. Many drug discovery companies can develop the molecule, but can't do the companion biomarker. And so we partner with them to do work that it doesn't make sense for them to invest in themselves.
0: So you're really recreating and innovating on the full suite pharmacology and services that a normal large pharma would have, but providing it to these innovative companies.
1: We've tried to pick a few bits of it that are hard. We don't want to do it all because we're not that big picked a few areas we think are, are, are barriers for people to progress and really, you know, throwing our weight behind those areas to try and create some national momentum on areas that might unblock the pipeline of new medicines and new companies.
0: Excellent. And you're speaking about National Pipeline. And to date this podcast a wee bit, it's July 2020. And we're still stuck in the first wave of the coronavirus SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. So I know that you are very deeply involved in this response to COVID. Can you describe a little bit about your work? Yeah. So back in March, back on St. Patrick's Day in March, I was asked to
1: help. And so I mean, I did say, sure, I'll help. No problem. What help do you need? And I said, (laughs) well, we, we, we need a new center. And it hasn't got any building, and it hasn't got any people, (laughs) and it hasn't got any equipment, and it hasn't got an assay. But you can do it. (laughs) You just crack on and do that. (laughs) (laughs) So literally from the 17th of March to the 7th of April, we built the National COVID Screening Center from scratch. Designed the lab, built the lab, got the equipment, got the UK Army, the UK Navy, the UK government to bring stuff to site. Brought 200 people to the facility and set up a clinical screening facility for COVID. We're one of a network of four national centers doing this at at high scale. It works alongside our National Health Service, but outside of it, to add capacity in in this time of national and and international crisis.
0: And where are these four centers located in the UK? How do they collaborate?
1: So there's one in Milton Keynes, which those of you in America may not have heard of. There's one in Cambridge, which you will have heard of. Another one in Glasgow, and then ours, which is near Manchester. And we're all different. Some of them are private sector, some of them are universities, but we work together because this is, you know, the only thing we're competing with is the virus. Exactly. Yeah. You know, how how can we get the testing done as fast, as high quality as we can? To get answers back to patients on questions that they desperately need the answer to.
0: And can you give us an idea about scale? I mean, how much are we talking? Are we talking thousands, millions? What's the testing regimen and demand?
1: So since we started at the beginning of April, we've done just about 1 million samples in my facility, which when you think about the complexity of those, that come in as a nasopharyngeal swab in tubes of a great variety of dimensions, girths, and, and, and sizes from sites all around the country. The logistics of this alone are quite eye-watering. We also, I used to run high-throughput screening, and one thing you can guarantee is every well's is the same size and the same footprint. Here the samples and the logistics, and you know people are packing their own samples, mm-hmm. so they come in. You know, as you might expect, more variety than you would in a conventional high throughput environment. So that that's been a learning curve for me, sure.
0: So something we ask everybody who comes on this is what your greatest professional achievement or lab based discovery is to date. Would you say the founding and creation of this center in three weeks' time is yours, or do you have another? It's certainly the most immediate one. We you know normally when I've done research before, you you you, you do a project for two
1: years, you write a paper, six months later, it's published, somebody reads it, and eventually, maybe there's some impact. Whereas this is very much, you know, within 24 hours, somebody finds out the impact. So it's probably the most urgent project I've ever done. I mean, obviously, a few years ago, only three years ago, I set up the lab capabilities for the Catapult as well, again, from scratch. So I guess doing things from scratch seems to be my thing now. (laughs) I hope it doesn't become my thing long term because it's, kind of hard. But I'm I'm very proud of those things we have established. De novo, you start with literally a blank sheet of paper and saying, how
0: could I build a lab and a team and a culture? And then you you look back a while later and there it is. Hey, that's really hard. If you can formalize that and replicate it multiple times, uh, power to you. I'd
1: kind of like to stop at this point, but yeah, (laughs) we'll we'll see.
0: Fair enough. Tell me about how your skills and involvement with the SLAS community and what you've learned being a member of this community has helped in order to prepare you for this challenge.
1: So I think the key thing is community, Mike, it's working across sector with people who you know or don't know. So when I had to set up, let's say the catapult, I thought, who could I get to help me. And so we, we have called upon people I have known for many years from the pharma industry who are intimately involved in our project. Our automation expert is a pharma individual. Our head of lab is a pharma individual. Our head of data is a pharma individual. All of whom I knew from the community that I work with. Very handy. And, <laughs> and I'm going to pretend at least that some of them owe to be a favor. I'm not sure they, they owe to be as big a favor as they've given me. National. But, <laughs> but we, we, we have worked with people across the community, the technology vendors, the Instrument vendors, the pharma experts, and everybody has just said yes because they wow. all see this is a problem for everybody. And because we have a community, and whether you're in technology vendors or you're selling reagents, or you're in pharma, or you're in academia, you know, we all have a common goal of helping to improve health. And so when, when you've got a problem statement, then you can bring that range of skills together to a problem. So it's been nice to put that into practice. The sort of thing I always talk about when I talk about open innovation projects. How you view the sum is greater than the individual parts, and only occasionally do you actually show that that here it's really happening. We're all just getting on with it, and people are. You know, there's 15 different universities in my labs, and more than a dozen different companies' staff wow. are all in the same lab working together for a common problem. So that's a thing.
0: That's really amazing. That leads very nicely into the next question we have for you, which is, what do you suppose reading tea leaves from a very interesting perspective that you have, both being in, in open innovation and being in this national testing center and being again a board member, what will change the most in our community over the next 10 years? What's going to surprise people more than they think?
1: Well, I think the thing we've been ruminating on is some of those things that were not the sexy parts of the community have suddenly mm-hmm. had a spotlight shot on, on them. So diagnostics, for example. Diagnostics. I mean, we all go, yeah, diagnostics, sure, whatever. But then you look at it and think, well, actually, if we didn't have diagnostics that were ready to go for COVID, where exactly would we be? And what are we going to have for the next problem? Who's on top of building better diagnostics moving forwards? And also the workforce that needs to be trained to be able to scale up in the diagnostics space. And I guess similarly, virology was never the sexiest course topic. Well, I guess it's hard to imagine that goes back to being on the back burner. We recognize that this is sadly not the last pandemic coming our way. It's not the last respiratory virus pandemic probably coming our way. So areas that neglected is too hard a to word but haven't been in, in the forefront, suddenly the priority of those areas completely reverses, and we need to rethink how, how how we do research, how we'd schedule conference priorities, what do we think about those areas in terms of how they become? dramatically more important in the next five years than maybe they
0: looked in the past. It's true. Being honest and admitting our faults transparently, I'm looking back at the SLAS strategy for education. I don't think virology or diagnostics is really anywhere in the plan as of last year. But now, boy, howdy are we invested. (laughs) Exactly. And and, nearly
1: every company in the SLAS community is now becoming an expert in COVID because (laughs) that's, that's where
0: the problems lie. Exactly. What advice do you have as a professor, as a board member, as a national employee for younger generations coming into the field? What should they be doing right now to prepare for these careers? So I guess you got to start off with a passion
1: for it. The thing about a career in drug discovery is it is hard. And there's lots of barriers and most projects don't work. So you got to be prepared for things that not work. You got to think about flexibility that thing you're studying in university is really unlikely to be that thing you do for a job and that thing you do for your first job will not be that thing you do for your third job so having a passion but having some mental flexibility and resilience to say well actually that was interesting but now this is interesting and you know as well also not doing what's popular or trendy doing that thing that you are going to be the expert in those are translational skills. I do not have a diagnostics background or a virology background, but I can make things happen. and I know different cultures and how to work across boundaries. So that the key skill you end up with is not that technical skill you start from, but you got to bring that passion and that drive and that collaborative
0: spirit through your career journey. Well said and stated, sir. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners of this podcast?
1: But I don't know. I mean, hopefully the, some of the things that I'm saying here resonate with other people because I know many of the SLES community have found themselves learning about COVID in short order. And, you know, I think it's been a journey for everybody. I guess it's incumbent on me to pay tribute to all of the different industries that we've had to pull upon who are part of the SLES community. So the instrument and automation vendors, people like Beckman and Tcan and Hamilton and Integra have all been part of our journey. Reagent vendors, the likes of Thermo Fisher or Primer Design, more nationally, the likes of Roche, et cetera, have all more than pulled their weight. And then for us, the Alderley Park, Northwest England community of scientists across industry and across universities have all pitched in. So for me, for any of them who are listening to this, a thanks to them and to the people around the SLS have done the same thing in their own locations, standing up screening centers, standing up assays that have had immediate benefit from public health.
0: It's really amazing. Thank you. We echo those thanks. And thank you, Peter, for giving us the time today. We know you're busy. We're going to let you get back to the fight. Thanks, Mike. See you guys. Take care. See ya.